0: Coronavirus has changed all of our lives, but how will it impact our future? Does this change everything? I am Alar Tankler. On this episode of Does This Change Everything? The topic is financing the preparedness against infectious diseases. This might sound obvious, but the question is, how, if at all, were we preparing for possible pandemics in the past? And how will the current coronavirus change this? And we're going to ask this from Shiva Dastar, who is the um, head of the Innovation Finance Advisory Division at the European Investment Bank. And she was at the birth of a financial instrument called the InnoFin Infectious Diseases Financing Facility um, several years ago. So, Shiva, do you think the coronavirus will change things in the area of Preparing for pandemics.
1: Thank you, Alar. Indeed, I hope that I'm um, talking on behalf of many who feel that, in, at hindsight, the world just did not wake up to the um, alarm bells in the prior uh, SARS, um, you know, pandemics. And hence, yes, I do really hope that this is, you know, this time around because of the global devastating impact, we are going to have, in fact, a paradigm shift or a really global mindset change. I know these are, these sound very cliché, um, like clichés, but I, I really do see that this is the only way for us to um, really ensure that we are now better prepared. You know, you may have heard of the um, expression of the black swan, which um, came sort of about during the last financial crisis, this tail and risks, these very unlikely events of like a black swan. Swans are white and, you know, here you have a black swan. So nobody thinks that there is one until you actually see one. And then you become more conscious of the likelihood of one. And that then, in a way, um, gets reflected in your future risk assessment frameworks. And you, you know, on the one hand, you understand that you had therefore completely underestimated a certain risk, and on the other hand, now understanding it, you it gives you at least the understanding to see how you can mitigate it, uh, how you can therefore become better prepared.
0: But Sima, uh, let me let me just interrupt you for a second. Do you think so? My understanding is that the risk is typically um, assessed by you know the likelihood of an event happening um, times the the damage that could do. Do you which one do you think is is changing because of the pandemic? Do you think that people will uh, people are more conscious of the possibility of a, of another pandemic sweeping the globe? Or is will there be a better understanding about the enormous impacts that that will bring about?
1: I think this is an excellent question, and i would I would suggest both. Um, and I really now think back of, of sort of the discussions of pandemics and global health more broadly so far. So in terms of the risks, um, the probabilities that you're referring, I think we have looked at it with a rather limited um, lens, a narrow lens. Um, You know, you may have heard the expression of neglected diseases, the diseases of the poor. Um, So here, you know, very often when people talked about infectious diseases, we sort of looked at it at, at, at diseases like tuberculosis, malaria, HIV, mainly affecting, you know, developing countries and as bad as is, as this may sound, but somehow, you know, the we just did not necessarily see how this could become something that actually would affect the globe, everyone. I mean, that, you know, even though the science tells us that viruses do not know borders do not respect any of the boundaries that we are setting gdp or race or nationality or anything somehow we so that we we underestimated the risks yeah but as you also point out clearly we also absolutely under uh, estimated the economic damage so if you think of the cost benefit analysis that drove decisions in the past of you know should countries companies invest in you know global health r&d infectious diseases you know so on the one hand you would sort of look at a few billions uh, you know let's say a billion euro dollar per vaccine and and this would be over 10 15 years it seemed always a lot of money for a potential you know, and you get, and on the cost side, nobody really understood how to capture it. And because a lot of it was about developing countries that perhaps didn't have, you know, you didn't have a good understanding of how their GDP may um, be affected, there was a complete underestimation. So right now you're looking at it, of course, if you look at all the stimulus packages all over the world, we're talking of tens of trillions you know so this would be what is the cost um of of not having done anything compared what prevention would have cost you know we're talking maybe in, in in tens of billions if you look at a portfolio of vaccines of r&d activities of some healthcare preparedness as a preventive tool i mean it is staggering as you can imagine uh, and and no rational decision maker would Basically, not invest in prevention um knowing the costs that would come by by inaction so um therefore, I think it is both it is really uh, my 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 hope is that we will when we look at these risk assessment frameworks, we will look at both and unfortunately, we now have uh, the data i guess to understand it better it's no longer you know high assumptions and uh, worst case scenarios. Unfortunately, we are now living these
0: really bad scenarios. So in the past, uh, uh, the decision makers they were putting the the cost of preparing for pandemics, like the cost of investing into the development of vaccines, the, those billions against um, a possible upside or or a benefit of of uh, of a, of a you know, of a figure that they couldn't really put a good price on, but it was mostly calculated based on what a specific disease could do in the in the developing countries. And now, based on the experience we have now from the coronavirus, the the hope is that we can put the this investment into the preparedness, into the vaccines, against avoiding the damage of trillions that we are seeing that an actual pandemic can cause. Is that is that the gist of it?
1: Yes, I would say that that is the gist of it. Again, we are generalizing and I don't wish to suggest that there were no public sector um, you know experts looking at it a bit more broadly but as a general rule I think one of the reasons of this chronic underinvestment in our preparedness has been indeed on the one hand um, basically underestimating the risk. So therefore, this tail end risk, these things thinking that they just, you know, are are so unlikely to happen. It's like meteorites, you know, hitting us. I mean, people just think this is so unlikely until one, of course, hits us, then it becomes, oh, you know, it's likely. So there is a bit that. And then, of course, um, there's also perhaps something, a timing mismatch. So our political systems and the... Political decision, decision makers, of course, you know, they go through cycles of four or five years and re- re-election and, and all of that. And you have R&D research and development, uh, especially of vaccines in normal cases taking 10 to 15 years. If you think of HIV, we're still working on developing these vaccines and constantly needing to update and up, you know, uh, improve these uh, vaccines. So, there is a mismatch and hence very often we see that our maybe political leaders do not have the incentives to invest heavily in prevention because you know they may not be the ones who get rewarded when then something down the line happens which is rather unlikely and and um you know hard to understand so there is really also, therefore, in this mindset change uh, that, I, that I hope to see in the future is we really need to rethink, um, uh, you know, a bit our perhaps capitalistic models of, of returns on investments in a very different way now that we will have the data of the economic costs of not investing in prevention.
0: That's a, that, that's, a, that's a great point, Shiva. Now, when you mentioned you had two other points that you think are going to change, what are those?
1: Yes, yeah, so the other um, two points, I mean, second point is hopefully a more positive uh, note, because we have the science and the technology, the collective uh, or the ability to really invest Uh, in the tools that would improve our preparedness now what do i mean with that well you know it is really i think what will change i hope is with that new mindset of the importance of this preparedness we will look at our um, innovation sort of uh, at our r&d and innovation landscape in a much more interdisciplinary approach in a way like preparing for war where you know you look at all the you know science and technology that you have in order to prepare for it. So what do I mean with it? We have space technologies. We have, of course, the whole medical sciences. Um, you know, what we need is basically a much more integrated uh, approach in investing in these with a view to using all of these um, bodies of knowledge towards that greater preparedness. Uh, Can you- so it's not...
0: Sorry. Yeah. Can you can you just give an example? Like how, for example, could space technology come come in hand?
1: Well, you know, space technologies can actually be extremely uh, useful. As you know, like think of satellites um that can uh, you know trace uh, that can sort of um track hotspots of um you know for instance of 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 epidemics uh, it's a matter of you know making sure that we use the observation tools that we have uh, especially the satellites to have a much better global perspective of how uh, maybe you know epidemics could uh, could could spread, how populations are moving. Um, you know there are a lot of uh, right now we're using these uh, also for climate um, so that's just one example. Um, I think in the in the field of um, R&D in biology a lot of the research and development in in other fields that have progressed can actually now be very useful for also uh, the science of, of uh, vaccination and and, and virology and, and so on. So, you know, uh, digitalization, I think, think of, you know, our digital tools, uh, you know, our phones that we have, we carry with us, can actually give them the, you know, our authorities also better sense of they can communicate with us and our, tool, our devices also can communicate back. Now, So there is obviously a lot of, um, we have the tools, it's perhaps a matter of looking at them from that mindset of how can they contribute to greater preparedness.
0: Okay, and the third one, the the third point you had that was about to change.
1: Yes, the third point is perhaps really uh, another very important one that, that, that I think we should really now become more conscious of is the role of the public sector. Um, right now, we see sort of the public sector very often in many economies, liberal economies, as sort of coming in right now to fix the problem. You know, um, we sort of, and I, I hope with this we realize, I mean, the whole point of preparedness means that you prepare in good times. And that means that we, I think we all as civil society should recon- rethink the role. Of public governments as being empowered to actually really invest in the healthcare sectors, invest in uh, people's education, in digital platforms and you know making sure that you know in good times as in bad times the public sector is well set up and empowered to actually make and create um, markets and, and, and be very proactive and empowered, and not just coming in to fix an issue when, you know, when everything else fails, when the markets collapse. Now, this is an area which um, many may have sort of heard and read Mariana Mazzucato. She's a professor at UCL um, who has written quite a lot about it, and in her more recent article in The Guardian on um, the 18th of March, she has actually made that point quite clear. I think this is an area where we all need to perhaps revisit our own thinking of the role of the public sector, and indeed this may also then uh, bring into it the role of institutions like the EIB.
0: And speaking of the EIB, so can you just very briefly to to finish things up, give an overview what has been the EIB's role in this in the past, and what you hope for that to be uh, moving forward.
1: Yes, so EIB has actually um, also, in a way, has had the tools and has invested uh, in these areas, but perhaps more as a niche uh, than, you know, as a matter of of really large scale. So what do we have? On the one hand, we set up the Infectious Diseases Finance Facility back in uh, 2015 under the INNOFIN program. This was actually a very important initiative. We, you know, know, got the green light during the Ebola outbreak, but it was based on a lot of market assessment and consultation with important players like the Gates Foundation and and other large foundations and member states to see how we can add to the mix of uh, funding via grants, also like, you know, instruments that have a repayable feature where in the... um, in a case of a success, you get actually repayments and you increase, you actually manage to you know, do more with less, so to speak. Um, so this was the infectious disease finance facility, which actually is now um, a very useful tool that the bank has. And as uh, you may know, we are financing We're looking to finance a number of Corona vaccine projects. Um, and my hope is that with this new mindset change, instruments like that one, not only will they stay on in the new framework program, but perhaps we really need to look at ways to uh, give them more resources so that they can actually do much more than they currently have. We also, as a bank, as you may know, have invested in healthcare systems um, in, uh, in Europe, but also outside. But again, my sense is with the new you know, mindset change, we should perhaps look at these investments uh, together with our, with the uh, public sector, really with a view towards this preparedness for pandemics. And, and hence, I hope that there will be many more investment opportunities for the EIB into this area.
0: Well, thank you very much. Um, this was Shiva Dustar, head of the Innovation Finance Advisory Division at the European Investment Bank. And this was, does this change everything from the European Investment Bank to the EU Bank?